You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with my buddy Anthony Petrielli. How you doing, man? I'm good. Welcome back. We missed you. Yeah, I was on LTIR last week. You know, I had to get Gus Katsaros, Mississauga man, had the 905 replacing me. I, I really enjoyed your talk. thought you guys did a good job filling in for me last week. You know, I'll have you know, I didn't tell you this, and it's funny given what just happened. I totally tongue-twisted MLHS uh, like three times. We had to restart the podcast a number of times at the beginning because I just... I don't know what was going on. It just MLHS was tripping me right up. Well, I've said Maple Leaf hot stove, Maple Leafs hot stove. There are a bunch of different times where I screw things up. So it's all good, man. It happens in life. But Rasmus Sandin is at the top of my list of things I want to talk about today because in the last week or two of the season here, we've had Timothy Lilligren killing penalties. We've seen line combinations we haven't seen before. It's just kind of that screw it, end of the season. The Leafs have already locked up first in division, so we're trying new things here. There was a game where Morgan Riley sat for load, load management reasons. Rasmus Sandin played on the top pair alongside TJ Brody and didn't miss a beat. So I don't think it's time to admit right now that, oh, Rasmus Sandin, bonafide top four defenseman at five on five. He can fill those minutes right away. But I've loved what I've seen from him from a confidence standpoint, his ability to move the puck, his ability to draw in that extra four-checker, beat F1 on the breakout, and now you've got numbers going up the ice. What have been your overall thoughts on Sandine's play so far? Because I know that's basically been the, the biggest talking point in Toronto lately because we don't have much else to talk about. We basically know what the team is at this point. It's a very good team. This is the shiny new toy that we're all getting a bit excited about. The first thing that stands out, it's pretty wild, is he basically didn't play for... A calendar year I mean it's it's kind of wild that he's he's stepped back in and he hasn't really missed a beat but he won he didn't have any beat to miss from because it's not as if he's an established player in the league and two he really had just not played hockey in the past year so for him to kind of come in and do what he's doing is really impressive I think that you know the things that stand out to people that are pretty obvious or you know the puck poise um He's really good on the breakouts. He's crafty. He makes really clever passes. It's probably surprising to some people who didn't watch him at all in the AHL, but he's, I don't want to say he's physical per se, uh, but he's strong and he has a little bit of a streak to him. He doesn't mind taking a run at guys uh, on occasion, which I kind of like. I think 5'11", 183 pounds, but he can pack a punch on a reverse hit on Blake Wheeler. Or if he catches you in the neutral zone where you don't think he's going to step up on you and all of a sudden he's in your jersey, if you're not ready for it and you're not bracing for the hit, he can catch some guys off guard. I feel like he weighs a little bit more than that. Like, I mean, if you go on NHL.com, Blake Wheeler has one of those made-up weights. It's 225 pounds. And you know whenever you see a number like that, it's probably not true. Well, he's 6'5", so that one's a bit tougher to gauge. But he's probably at least a good 220, and he went down pretty easily when Sandine kind of... And I know people will be like, oh, you surprised him and whatever, but if you're giving up 45, 50 pounds on a guy, it's hard to knock him on his ass the way he did. So I don't know if that... But, you know, neither here nor there. I think he's a little bit thicker and stronger than... Maybe people realize. I think some of the stuff that he does is going to play really well in the limited minutes, right? You know, those clever passes, moving the puck up through the middle of the ice, uh, which he loves to do. You know, that stuff performs really, really well, especially against, you know, the lower lines in the league. I think once teams kind of get a pre-scout on him and they start anticipating those passes, we'll have to see what he's really made of. Right now, he's kind of in that, this is the initial wave of, Rasmus Sandin to the league and he's you know seeing everything but at some point teams are going to start reading them yeah if we go through the scouting report on Sandin what does it say it says great passer you know, you'll be thinking that he's going to make one pass and he surprises you with another pass that you didn't see it reminds me a bit of Mitch Marner where you go oh wow I didn't even think about making that pass but yeah that was a great idea great decision to open up the ice whether it's for his partner to put them in open space. I know when he first stepped in, he was playing with Zach Bogosian, and there were a few times where Zach Bogosian had all this open ice in front of him. And it was a bit funny, because what's Zach Bogosian going to do with a bunch of open ice in front of him? But I want to see Sandine get more minutes with some of Toronto's higher-end players, because in that game where he played with TJ Brody, we got to see some shifts with Tavares Nylander and Sandine, Matthews Marner and Sandine. And his passing ability there, I think, is 
what you want to get the most out of. The Leafs do this after penalty kills. They'll throw Riley out there with Sandine in the offensive zone with Matthews, Tavares, uh, Nylander. And that's where I get most excited about Sandine's development because I go, okay, this is where he can make a big difference. PP1, where he's on the ice with Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Tavares, this is where his passing can make a big difference. Do you want to talk about the power play in Sandine there? Because I know there were a few rough moments the other night. I was going to say, the the wild thing is, is he, he plays PP1 against the Habs. And, I mean, I think I counted three times minimum where he looked off Matthews and elected to shoot or put the puck to the other side of the ice. And, you know, I don't know. You know, Matthews leads the league in goals. Someone send this guy a message. If Austin Matthews is wide open as he was yesterday, and I could go back and I could cut a number of, like, still shots and just say he didn't pass him the puck here. And you could... Matthews was holding it back. I promise you, you know, if you watched his body, you could tell... I think he wanted to break his stick a few times. You could tell he was kind of looking going, did I actually not get the puck there? And it happened. And if you're like me, you were watching, and I think Sandine sees the ice really well. And you were kind of watching him pull the puck or walk the line. And, and you're thinking, okay, here it is. He's going to pass it to Matthews with space. And like we're going to get a goal. And there would be no pass. And the first time I was going, okay. The second time all right, what's going on here? The third time, it's like, okay, you better pass from the puck next time he's wide open. Yeah, I think it's going to take some acclimatization there with him trying to figure out how to run the power play, how to get Marner in the right spots, how to get Matthews in the right spots. And I think you made a good point. If you're looking off Austin Matthews and firing a shot from the blue line and Morgan Riley does it, we're freaking out on Twitter. We are shouting expletives. We're screaming at our TV. When Rasmus Sandin does it, I know Dom made a joke about this a while back where Sandin scored on a point shot from the blue line. And everyone was like, wow, what a great decision. That's what we want to see. Whereas if Riley did it, we'd all say, oh, that's bad luck. That's an expected goal chance of 0.01. Shouldn't be taking that shot. So I think sometimes when we're evaluating players, you take the names off the jerseys and just evaluate the play. Let the record show that I am nothing if not consistent. I could care less if it's Riley, Sandine, Bogosian, my grandmother. Does not matter. If Matthews is wide open and you don't pass him the puck, that was a bad decision. You know, I've ever seen kicking and screaming. Pass the puck to the Italians. Pass the puck to the Italians. <laughs> Matthews is the Italian. If he's wide open, if he's even a semblance of open, you put the puck in his vicinity and on the power play and say, shoot. It's the easiest play. I could probably pick up a couple assists in the league, passing that guy the puck and just standing there. Do you think the Leafs power play in the long run, let's say over the next calendar year, would be better with Morgan Riley or Rasmus Sandin running it from the point. Same four forwards, Matthews, Marner, Tavares, Nylander, and insert name. Do you think it would be better with Riley or Sandin? I don't know if it would be better because, you know, Riley's had a, some extremely productive seasons, but I think it would be negligible. I mean, if you're going to sit there and say, you got to keep Riley, what about the power play? And be like, I don't care about the power play, man. You got Sandine. You could find a, a skilled guy with a good shot uh, to, you know, toil on the third pair and play on the power play and pass the puck to Matthews. I mean, that's what Sandine might be heading into the playoffs. Yeah, it's it's not enough. Uh, if, if you want to say that Riley's really good five on five uh, or he eats minutes or something other than that to keep him, then then go for it. That's your argument. But your argument can't be the power play. That that much I know. I don't know if it'll be necessarily better with Sandine, but I don't think there's a huge difference of a drop-off. I actually really like Sandine's. He has a little snapper, and he's good at getting it through traffic, and there's a little bit of heat to it. You know, it gets through, and it's a surprising shot. John Klingberg's wrister is one that I always think of when I go, wait, how did that get through? And it just keeps rising out of nowhere, and all of a sudden it beats the goaltender. And shots from the middle of the ice on the blue line are actually a decent shot. I know I'm a big XG yeah. shot location kind of guy. If you look at a heat map on where goals are scored in NHL rank, obviously none of them are scored from the boards. From the blue line and the boards, they don't get scored. But if you're at the very middle of the blue line, it's a much higher chance than you think. And, and it makes sense because the angle of the net, you have more to shoot at. I think it also increases the chances of that shot getting through because from the boards, eh, you're going to have a lot of traffic in front. From the middle of the ice, there's tipping opportunities. There's Even if it, it takes a bounce, you have more net to shoot at. Sandine does a really good job of walking the line, getting himself to middle ice, and then firing that quick snapper through like you mentioned. 
Yeah. The one thing I'll, I'll say just as we circle back to Riley here, um, just quickly, I don't know what it is, but I, something is not physically right. You could tell. You think he's hurt? We, we know that he sat out the load management game. I know something is, is not truly, something is truly off. I mean, he's just, he's not as dynamic as we know he can be. Is some of that age potentially? I mean, he's no longer 24. That's when you're at your physical peak. And as you get into your late 20s, you're not as fast anymore. I mean, it could be. I don't know. I don't think that his skating has dropped. It shouldn't drop off as much as... It, I mean, how many times do we see him joining the rush? North-South you know? skating, he's spectacular. But with Riley, my biggest frustration has been the way that he skates backwards and he doesn't control his gap as well as some of the other better rush defenders in the NHL. I mean, even Jake Muzzin, who if you watched him skate, you'd go, eh, I don't know if this is an NHL player, but he's smart enough defensively to make sure that by the time the opposing forward gets to the blue line, he's there, his stick's there, and he's broken up the play. Whereas Riley will either keep backing up, keep backing up, keep backing up, or he'll read the play wrong in the first place, jump up, miss it, and now it's an odd man rush. It, it, this is where I get frustrated with Riley because he's such a special player, like you said, when he's jumping up into the play. If they win a faceoff in the offensive zone and Riley's skating down the left wall, he's one of the few defensemen in the league who will be able to see that pass to the slot and connect on it. I think uh, Adam Brooks connected on a shot like that. Maybe it was someone else. But Riley's so good at that play. He's so good offensively that... I just get frustrated when he gives up things defensively, and I think I just might need to accept that's who he is as a player because it's been this yeah. way for so many years now. I don't think it's going to change, but it just feels like because of what he can do offensively, if he could just clean some of it up defensively, he'd be getting more overall value. But at age, how old is Morgan Riley now? He's he's in his mid to late 20s, so it, it's not going to change at this he's point. He's 28. 28. I think he's It's not changing. 27. Yeah, you— you're probably a little hard on him. I feel like I'm pushing back against the overall narrative that he's been Toronto's best defenseman over the last decade. And I just, at five on five, I don't see it because I think he gives it all back. Everyone always talks about everybody else. Brody looks good. Riley's producing. Justin Hole's amazing. Like at the end of the day, I know who the best guy is five on five on this team. And it's Jake Muzzin. It is. It always has been. He just... He'll he'll float in and out of games at times because he's a vet. But chips on the table. I know who the best vet five on five and PK. It's it's Jake Muzzin. They paired him with Timothy Lilligren the other night against the other team's top players, and it doesn't matter. You can pair Nikita Zaitsev with him. You can pair anyone with Jake Muzzin, and they'll get positive results. You can pair Justin Hall with him, who's weirdly been struggling over the last. If you look at the numbers, you can say it's been the last couple years. Where without Jake Muzzin, I'm not sure what Justin Hall is, to be honest. So uh, before we get to a little bit more on defense, I want to circle back on that because last night I tweeted that I thought it was interesting that Lilligren moved up into the top four, quote unquote, uh, instead of Travis Dermott. And a lot of people came back and they said, well, they're trying to keep the Dermott-Sandine pairing together for continuity because they're likely to play in the playoffs and Lilligren isn't. So they kind of viewed it as a little bit of a stopgap. It's a placeholder for Hall. Yeah, and I think that there's some merit to that for sure. From the Lilligren and the and the Keefe standpoint, I totally get that. But where I was kind of coming from it, and you, you can't really expand on Twitter. It's a little bit, you know. 280 characters, not a lot of room for nuance. Yeah, it's not. And then you get into a whole long thread that nobody wants to read. So I really wanted to take to this podcast to address that because I, I did get that comment a few times. But where I'm standing from it is Travis Dermott has played over 200 games in the league. Which means he's a successful NHL draft pick, according to all the draft yeah. research. That's how 200 games, that's, that's the... He's an NHL call. player. And for what it's worth, as a quick aside, when I look at Timothy Lilligren, I don't think his ceiling is super high, but I think he's an NHL player. Like, I think he can play in the league. I actually was at his uh, NHL debut just by chance. Um, I, I was at the game in attendance and I looked and I was like, oh, Lilligren's playing today. So that was kind of cool. And I thought that then... He's way better defensively than I thought he would be. Yeah. I, just, I assumed he'd be a train wreck when he moved up to the next level. And his neutral zone defense in his first game, uh, at least that, that game that he played when we weren't really expecting anyone to come into the lineup, but he was there and he was shutting things down in the neutral zone, just stepping up on guys and physically overpowering them. Yeah. Which, again, if you watch Timothy Lilligren in his draft year, that's not something you would have expected, but he's come a long way in that regard. Again, I'm like you. I don't, I don't see the top four upside anymore, but... At five on five, I think he can play NHL hockey. Yeah, but circling back to Dermot quickly, I mean, the fact I think it's such an indictment on him that they're 
they look at their group and they say a regular's out and we would rather just keep this guy rolling on the third pairing as opposed to moving him up into the top four or even giving him an opportunity. He's played over 20 minutes once this season. And it was that game yeah. against and Calgary. Early in the season, there were like eight, nine, yeah. 10 minutes, 11 minutes, 12 minutes. It was bottom yeah. pair sheltered usage and no special teams time. I looked it up today. The one game that he's played over 20 minutes was that game against Calgary where they speed bagged them the entire game and they couldn't score on Riddich. And then Nylander scored twice, including that ridiculous overtime winner. That was the game. Miko Lettinen was, was on. Um, they were missing a regular on defense. So it was like, the, the bottom three defensemen were Lettinen, Bogosian, and Dermott. So that was the one game that it took for him to play over 20 minutes. And realistically, that probably played a part because that game was tied 0-0 for the, for the most part. And then Calgary scored late. And, um, and then the Leafs were obviously making a push. So, you know, if the Leafs had a lead, basically, is what I'm saying, in the first period for the rest of that game, I imagine that Bogosian actually would have played more than the 12 minutes he did that night. And Dermott would still not have a 20-plus minute game under his belt this season. I just think you're 24. You've played in the organization for a while. You're at 200 games. You know, months ago we had Bourne on and he was saying, you know, he's kind of got to figure out his role. He's now on the PK because of injuries right now. I just, how is this guy not in Seattle? How is he not in Seattle next season? I mean, I think that's where we all see him. I think that's realistically, if you read the tea leaves, the Leafs are probably going to protect four forwards, four defensemen. You'd protect, uh, presumably, Riley, Brody, Muzzin, Hall, leave Dermot exposed. And Seattle, they seem to be big in analytics right now. They have Namita Namdakumar. They they have some very big names there. I'd imagine Dermot's someone that they would pinpoint and say, yeah, if we give this guy a decent partner, play him on a second pair at five on five. I think we could get some value out of him. But the sad thing for me in Toronto is that I I just feel like he could have been more. I feel like he could have moved up into that top four role, but he had opportunities. He's, he's played there before and never really stuck around. So now we've reached a point where Rasmus Sandin looks like the better primary puck mover on a third pair. When Zach Bogosian comes back, I'd imagine they go Sandin Bogosian right now. Unless Sandin plays terribly over the next week or two and just shits the bed in the playoffs. But I don't think that's going to happen based on what we've seen from Sandin. So realistically, you're going to have a Riley Brody pair. They've been great together all season. You're going to have a Muzzin Hall pair. Muzzin can play with anyone. And you're going to have Sandin and Dermot until Bogosian's ready to play. And then it's going to be Sandin Bogosian. That's realistically what I'm seeing right now. I don't, I don't think there's, unless Bogosian's really hurt, but it seems like he's going to come back for the playoffs. The other thing to that is Sandine plays on the power play, right? And and Dermot is sent if everybody's healthy, Dermot is just strictly a five on five guy. And he's not even a guy that they play in high leverage minutes. It's it's sheltered third pair usage. And if you look around the league, not just on Toronto, but any third pair defenseman who doesn't get special teams time, those guys are in and out of the lineup. That's a number seven, number eight D, and yeah. that's basically the way Dermot's been used over the last year or two. It's kinda sad considering what we saw from him in his first season. Looked like he had more dynamic upside as a puck mover and potentially joining the rush and making plays. But I think that's been the biggest problem with him is when he's on the wrong side of center, he's not dynamic enough to break down a defender. So, okay, you're a defensive specialist who isn't even that great defensively. What do we do with you? The thing, I'll I'll always maintain this uh, until I'm blue in the face, but when the Leafs gave him minutes and responsibility because they had no choice... I thought he was good. Like when he had to play in the top four, I thought he was solid. I didn't mind him at all. But to your point, he has six points in 47 games. So you're not doing anything offensively. You're not, you know, a stud defensively. It's kind of just, it, you know, is a defenseman going through the motion? His gap is great in the neutral zone. And it goes back on the loose pucks on, on puck retrievals and can make the first pass. And I think that's part a big part of the reason his... Uh, shots and chances against numbers have been very good throughout his career. It also helps that he's in sheltered minutes and the guys that he's facing tend to be guys who primarily dump the puck in as opposed to elite puck carriers. But I don't know, man. I I, I feel sad anytime I talk about Travis Dermott this year or last year just because he's someone I believed in. And none of us like being wrong when we're trying to evaluate hockey players. We like being right. And he's a guy who I look at and I saw a lot of signs that go, Okay, you can't teach gap control in the neutral zone. He's just good at this. You can't teach the escapability he has going back on loose pucks, and he's so good at that. So 
if he can develop a little bit on the defensive side of things against uh, the cycle, and if he can create a bit more off the rush, I saw a guy who was a bonafide top four defenseman. Never materialized. I hope it does in Seattle, but it looks like his time's kind of done here in Toronto. Yeah, last thing I'll say on that is if he does become a top four defenseman, I won't be surprised. I'm not saying he's a bum by any stretch of the imagination. I think he can play. Just I think it's an indictment on him where they've kind of basically just pigeonholed him as a third pairing guy. And at best, he's not even secondary PK. He's secondary PK if other people are hurt. And it's just, it's not going to happen. But when you talk about him making you sad, I put this to you. Do you want to talk about something that makes you happy or another thing that makes you sad? Let's go happy. This is a happy place. I don't want to talk about Tom Wilson yet. Okay. You knew where that was going. I respect it. uh, That's more of an angry than a sad, (laughs) really. So we talk about happiness. The Leafs have clinched a playoff spot since we've last spoken. So A, hooray. I never want to take it for granted. And I've mentioned this before on previous podcasts. Like I went my entire high school and undergrad life without the Leafs making the playoffs. It was a really long stretch for a lot of us. Uh, A lot of the hardcore fans in the comments that have been here for a decade plus, whatever the case is, like I never take it for granted that these guys make the playoffs because we had literally years of shit, like basically a decade. So don't take that for granted. I remember I used to post the the chances of the Leafs making the playoffs in my Leafs Reddit days or early hockey Twitter days, and people were like, yeah, I remember when yeah. it was north of 90% heading into the end of that 2013-14 season. What happened the then? 18-wheeler, so, man. Yeah, you're conditioned to expect the worst as a Leafs fan. That's just the way life has been for us. So speaking of condition the worst, who would you rather play, Winnipeg or Montreal? I've been on this bandwagon all year, so I'll try to stay consistent here. I, even though Montreal has kind of struggled lately in the wins-loss department, assuming they have a, a healthy Brendan Gallagher come playoff time, which is yet to be determined, if Brendan Gallagher's playing, that team's unbelievable at 5-on-5, five five, and they scare me. Whereas the Jets have a great goaltender, yet they bleed chances like crazy. So to me, it's not even close. To me, I think Winnipeg's the much worse team. They don't have many top-four caliber NHL defensemen. Whereas Montreal, they're living in the offensive zone every shift, when Brendan Gallagher's healthy at least. Cole Caulfield can score, so that's an element added to the team where they were really struggling. I'm not a Habs fan, obviously, but if I'm just objectively trying to look at all the evidence here, I I go, wow, this is a good 5-on-5 team. Those are the types of teams who succeed in the playoffs. That is not a team I would want to face if I'm the Toronto Maple Leafs. Which team in the Canadian division right now reminds me the most of a Columbus Blue Jackets or a Boston Bruins team that is going to control possession in the offensive zone, on the forecheck, on the cycle, and kind of wear you down? To me, that's Montreal. So I'll say this because we've talked a lot over the over the months of who we would want to play in the playoffs, and that's kind of been an evolving topic as you know new information presents itself, as it should. Uh, but one thing that we've never really said just kind of off the top that I feel is really important to note is ultimately i don't give a shit who the leafs play i mean honestly if they lose round one that is on them the leafs beat themselves i could care less who they play in like the grand scheme of things honestly i just want to see them run over whoever it is and i know that the habs are good at five on five and they could present a challenge there's some depth there also very quickly eric Stahl is just having a hilarious mail it in montreal he's two points two goals in 17 games I didn't think I would see anything worse than Eric Stahl as a New York Ranger, but Eric Stahl as a hab so far is is coming close. But, you know, if you're the Leafs, I'm sorry, you have to win a playoff round this year. You have to. Like, you can't lose again. I mean, even if they lose in the second round, I think that would be a big disappointment, just considering it the strength be. of the, the division. But answer your own question here. You have to pick one. You have to pick one between Montreal and Winnipeg. Tell me who and tell me why. If... If Gallagher, Gallagher is honestly the big difference to me, and it's it's wild to say, Gallagher is really good, and I think that he completes that Deneau line and makes them a legitimate matchup threat against the Matthews line, and Matthews is going to eat no matter what, but he, Gallagher and the and completing that group, they're, they're greater than the sum of their parts somehow, they just are. It reminds me of that Vegas line in that first year with uh, Marcia So, Riley Smith, and Carlson, where individually you're not going, oh, these are terrifying players, but you put them together and they just make one of the best lines in hockey. I'll one-up you on that. It actually reminds me of the uh, Stephen Weiss, Thomas Fleischman, Christopher Stieg line in Florida, and they were really good. Are you sure? Were they? 
Yeah, they were. <laughs> Go look it up. Florida was like stunningly fun to watch that season. I, cu- I couldn't believe it watching. I was like, are they actually fun? And also, uh, I do not like Christopher Stieg. So that's kind of upsetting to watch it. But, um, you know, if Gallagher's in, then it's Winnipeg. If Gallagher's out, then it's Montreal. Um, the Leafs have had their most dominant games to me this season, other than that three-game series where they just destroyed Edmonton, uh, have been against Winnipeg to me. Like, Winnipeg just gets caved in regularly. and I mean, that's been the case for Winnipeg over the last couple of years. Yeah, and... You know, I said this at the time, I think, and we've talked about it a few times, but for Shevel Dayoff to just look at that, the firepower and the goaltending and the division and just go, yeah, I'm going to trade for Jordy Ben and call it a trade deadline. I mean, it's a fireable offense. I mean, you have to, they were, and they were humming around deadline time, right? Like now they're, I think they're on a, a you know, their last 10, they are two and eight. Like they're like, it's been brutal. I think they might have been the team hurt most. They might have been the team hurt most by Nashville going on a run there and deciding not to sell because they seemed like a team that was going to add Matias Ekholm, and he would have been a perfect addition because he's exactly what they need, a real top-pairing defenseman, unlike Josh Morrissey, who's been getting destroyed in those minutes this year. Yeah, and I should say, though, I mean, I wouldn't mind playing Montreal on the whole. Now, I would be nervous because as a Leaf fan, I'm conditioned to be nervous, and honestly, any sort of loss to Montreal in a playoff series would just be... The absolute worst, like, like my best friend is a Habs fan. Like, it would suck. Like, we'll probably have to lay out ground rules before the series for talking to each other. Uh, and then, you know, afterwards, be like, if you message me, if the Habs win, I will punch you in the face at some point. My sister's husband, so my brother-in-law, is a Boston Bruins fan. He's got to go, man. He's got to go. He can't be in the family. We we don't talk during playoffs, and he's actually been very good about it over the years, especially after 2013. He could have just come in, you know, any family get-together and just worn his Bruins jersey, and but he was good about it. Are your parents are your parents Leaf fans? They're huge Leafs fans. I blame my dad for getting me into this yeah. stupid team. Yeah, like same. Like, <laughs> and if I if I if somebody was marrying into the family and they came in celebrating a Bruins victory, I mean, it's just <laughs> good luck. That's all I can say publicly. I remember I was at a, fr- I was at a friend's birthday party once because I was just, oh, he's turning 30. I'm going to be here to support my friend. And one of his friends shows up in a Boston Bruins hat. Just like, oh, no, we're not going to get along, are we? Oh, it no. just can't happen. Like, the whole thing <laughs> is just that, yeah, I can't talk about 2013. All I'll say about that is at the end of it, I, I thought that we did a, a really good job covering the series up to that point. And, uh, and I was cranking out, like, full notebooks after each game, which was a lot. And, uh, and everyone was liking them to my knowledge and, uh, probably just, you know, moderated comments. But I remember the series ended and Alec, Alec asked me if I could, I could do like a wrap up conclusion. I was just like, no, like, no. (laughs) I remember having to do Leafs report cards after the game seven where Matthews got 18 minutes. Yeah. And, oh, I, I had to take a few deep breaths, just really calm myself down. And then I blurted out 3,000 words in like a, an hour. If if you look at the history, I don't think I've ever wrote written about the Leafs. I think other than la- maybe last year I did. But usually when they lose in the playoffs, I just I can't talk about Like I can't write about it that night. It's just I need a few days to just kind of to chill. So, yeah, ultimately roundabout way of saying I would play anybody. The only team that now actually concerns me and we laughed about them forever because Mike Smith is their goalie and Tyson Berry plays a lot. But I mean, you could conceive a world where Connor McDavid has like a twenty-point series. <laughs> so yeah, he had four points the other night, and it just felt like another casual Connor McDavid night. Yeah, like zero teams actually scare me. Scare me, but McDavid and Drysidle, like they scare me. Drysidle doesn't even scare me that much because he gives it all back defensively. He doesn't backcheck, and and I get that he's a, an awesome pointer. Yeah, but when you look at five on five. If you look at the chances that he gives up when he's on the ice, not just this season, last season, you can go back. At some point, that matters. And this has always been my point with Riley. This has been my point with a lot of players where I think even if you're creating a lot of offense, if you're giving it all back defensively, we should be taking that into account. And I think a lot of the times we just sort by points and we go, yep, that's an elite player. But there are elite players who don't give that up defensively. And if you're one of the guys who does give it up defensively, I think it's something we need to hold against you. And that's why I didn't want Drysaddle to win the heart last year, but we just sort by points. This is a sort by points league. 
So this is why I say the team doesn't scare me because if you if you break even with his scoring, you would expect the rest of the Leafs' depth to, you know, reasonably outplay the rest of the Oilers' depth. But where things get interesting, but would you? Because I feel like the Leafs' depth with Riley Nash coming into the fold. I mean, Nick Foligno they added as an elite defensive player, but none of these guys can really score other than Jason Spezza. Yeah, I would because. Um, I would I would be in this scenario. I'm considering Drysaitel playing alongside McDavid, so that means I don't think Edmonton has anything to go against Tavares, Nylander, and if they're gonna split Drysaitel, McDavid, and and say like Drysaitel, you you go up against Tavares and Nylander and Matthews and McDavid, you guys go head to head, which would be sick. Like the league needs it. The, like that would be so sick for the league two players both in their prime putting up career years mcdavid's on pace for i think over 82 games it's 140 points but he's i think he's gonna do the 156 games it's gonna be really cool how many games left does he have right now uh i think he has six he has six games left and he needs nine points there's there's a nice comment in there nice but you know as the league is so stupid like the the nhl is so dumb like we've talked about it for a number of reasons but like last night was just a hilarious example and this will lead into the Tom Wilson conversation but before we get to that like there were like nine games that started at seven o'clock last night but making a schedule is not that hard like it's not that hard guys and there were a ton of games and I have game center and I watch hockey like crazy because I'm just a huge loser but I watch it all the time and I like the Leafs overtime ended and then I flipped and watched the end of Ottawa, Winnipeg, and Zaitsev scored in like the final minute. You flip into the end of and Ottawa then, games. Yeah, now I just pity. Yeah, it was a tie game. It was a tie game. So I'm like, okay, let's see how it goes. And somehow Ottawa actually won in regulation. Then I watched the end of Columbus, um, Columbus versus Nashville, which went to overtime. And then I watched the end of Florida and. Um, uh, Dallas, because they were in overtime. And that's a good series because it depends on Dallas or Nashville. It's like the only playoff race we have left. But I'm like madly switching channels and trying to follow the scores and figure out where to go. And I'm like, just this is the stupidest league. Like, just like start games in 15 minute intervals. I mean, this is not rocket science. Or 30 minutes. It's pr- 30 minutes ends <laughs> up working really well because then when one game's on intermission, you can flip to the other one. They don't like doing that. I'm a big NFL guy, so on, on Sundays, you know, there's the 1 p.m. games, the 4 p.m. games, and then there's the night game. But in hockey, we love putting 10 games at the same time. It's dumb. And then and then we look at what happened with Tom Wilson and the Rangers yesterday. All right, here's the pivot point. So frustration with the NHL. Did you ever get to see the emails that were leaked a few years back? Yeah, of course. Travis Yost uh, was the guy. Yeah, he tw- he was talking about that the other night. And I think that's the best representation of the way that the league wants things to be called and wants things to be officiated off the ice, let's say. And I don't think it's changing anytime soon when you have leadership like Colin Campbell in there. We can all blame George Peros if we want for suspensions that don't meet our criteria, but I think Brian Burks brought this up in the past. Anytime someone in that role makes a decision that someone's going to disagree with, I don't think you can ever win in that position. I think the bigger issue is that the league just doesn't seem to care about this kind of stuff. I think we're stuck in the past and we haven't adapted to the concussion research that's out there. And I'm frustrated because I get that anyone who watched hockey in the seventies or eighties is going, yeah, old time hockey. This is awesome. Tom Wilson represents what I want from this sport. You have a, what's his name? Ray Whitney going on. Yeah. You know, I told you, I told you Ryan Whitney, my mistakes or whoever the spitting chick. Ray Whitney is a different guy, but a really good hockey player. Anyway. Yeah, no, sorry. He played a lot of games too. I think over a thousand. Uh, You have Greg Wyshynski going on Twitter and just doubling down on the, oh, I don't think it was a very big deal. And the NHL agrees, which is the most frustrating part in all of this. So I was somewhere between in the middle of that. I thought. It was slightly blown out of proportion in some circles. And I also didn't think it wasn't a big deal. So there's a few things to it. First off, he fully targeted vulnerable guys. Dude's on his back or on his like face first down on the ground. He's punching him the back of the head. And that's and that's that's a coward move. So like you, you can cut it any which way. But, you know, you can't punch a guy in the back of the head. I mean, that's just insane. Like, if he's down on the ice like that and... 
But you, he's going to get a $5,000 fine for this. This is what we're doing to help stop. And we can talk about Tom Wilson over the last few years, whether it's a late hit in the playoffs that doesn't get suspended. We've reached the point where him, it reminds me of Brad Marchand, where he can basically do whatever yeah. he wants because the league's afraid to do anything with him. So I actually like Tom Wilson. Like I think he's a good player. Like, I think he's he can be really helpful for a hockey team. He's surprisingly underrated. I remember going through his metrics a while back and realizing, oh my god, at five on five, he's really productive. He doesn't get any power play time and he produces. When he signed that contract, I was like, what an embarrassment. And he's he's turned out like, he's actually on a good contract when he's not being a moron. Well, that's the thing is the moron aspect of things is the that's the real market and efficiency of Tom Wilson because he can do things that other players can't. It's it's not okay to punch a guy when he's in a vulnerable position, and I'm trying to, you know, articulate this the right way. If he squares the guy up and they just go, and it's a clean fight with, like, you know, I don't know if there's such a thing as a clean fight, but, you know, they're both willing combatants. They drop the gloves and off they go. I mean, even the Edler-Simmons one, Edler knew what was happening. Simmons gave him a, a few seconds there to sort of drop his gloves and, and join the fight. Right, like you, you might not like it because one guy is actually a fighter and one guy's not. But it wasn't like Edler was like, "No, I'm not doing it," and Simmons was like, "You have no choice." Like Simmons was like, "You're gonna fight," and Edler was like, "Okay." Like he knew what was coming. Is this where you want to talk about the Panarin thing, where you're not you're not that mad at Tom Wilson for giving it to Panarin? No, what I'm saying is I don't think like what he did with Buchnevich was like that was complete garbage. And then, you know, Panarin has to like come in there and he's not even necessarily Panarin's not saying like I'm gonna drop the gloves like we're gonna fight like straight up he's basically just trying to get him off of him he's just trying to get him off of him and Wilson just took that as a further opportunity to go after him which is like it's so bush league on so many levels and then he sits in the box and flexes and I was watching the Stephen Valaket um uh he does he was a goalie for the Rangers and and now he does uh, I guess analysis in New York. He does awesome stuff with clear sight analytics. He's one of my favorite goalie analysts. Might be my favorite. And I was dying because I was I was watching his segment after, and he mentioned that he was texting Colton Orr, the sheriff, about what happened. And Colton Orr said he never would do that stuff when I was on the ice, but when there's no tough guys, he's a hero. And what bothers me in that sense is, okay, if he was going to kind of you know, run amok and a guy like Ryan Reeves is on the ice and they just go at it and things get a little silly. I could sit there and be like, okay, like it's too, you know, it's too heavyweights or whatever. Like things kind of happen, but just to kind of, I don't know, go after guys that you know that they can't defend themselves and you're, you're, you're being a dick. Like you're just, you're being a dick. So Wayne Simmons is a dick in your opinion. No, I don't think Wayne Simmons was cause he didn't do it for no reason. He did it because Edler, literally knocked Zach Hyman out of the lineup like he lined him up and he tried to like crush him I don't think he tried to knee him but he tried to like line him up and lay him out and he's hurt like we're like they missed Zach Hyman I think there's some justification to that no worries I was just trying to push back trying to play a bit of devil's advocate here no no that's fair I no, I'm glad that you brought that point up because I think there's a huge difference now Simmons just was like skating around you know like an asshole like looking for guys that he could destroy in a fight then I'd be like, yeah, he kind of is. But that I, that's not what I've seen from Wayne Simmons in, in his entire career. Like, he he generally looks for guys that, you know, are in his weight class. And um, there's usually, like, a reason to the fire and the fight. But Wilson, there's just, there's no rhyme or reason there. How do we solve this issue, I think, is my biggest question. Because with the current leadership that's in place right now, I don't see anything changing. Uh, Colin Campbell still working for the league has never made any sense to me. I I don't understand why they value his opinion. But this is the old boys club that just doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. Why should I expect it to? So you saw that the Rangers called out George Peros, right? That was really cool. And for what it's worth, I like it when we see teams actually push back against the NHL yeah, old ways of doing things. We don't see that very often in this league. It's very, you know, oh, let's, we're all buddy, buddy, you know, we're all going to golf together. We're all going to go to these GM meetings in Florida and, you know, have our cocktails. But this is an example of a team actually saying, no, this is not okay. And I kind of like it. There's not going to be change without resistance. So you need something like this, but 
I don't think it, it falls on George Peros specifically. I think it's a larger issue, much like the Tim Peel thing. It's not just one guy. It's the bigger systemic issue that you don't see this as a problem, and it's a huge problem. Yeah, and I'll say, too, to that, though, I mean, when George Peros was hired, did anyone think that that was going to be a good hiring? I think the logic behind it is that he's actually a well-educated guy who was in a lot of positions where he'd be able to make the call. But this is the issue, is that when a former fighter or a former dirty player, yeah. if you brought Rafi Torres in to run your player department yeah, safety, it's, it's garbage. in law, who who is brought in to be a judge? Do we find former murderers? Yeah. <laughs> Have you been a criminal? Can you please make a ruling? You understand their mindset, so you're going to be a great judge of character in this sense, right? It's like, no, we. this is why I'd love to see a Paul Correa brought in to run player safety, or Eric Lindros, or he won't do it because the NHL seems to hate him, but... We're gonna. I want to see someone in that position whose career was shortened because of the the Department of Player Safety's lack of involvement. And I thought Brendan Shanahan probably did the best job of anyone in the past twenty five years who actually tried to solve the problems. And there was so much pushback from NHL GMs who thought he was going too far. And now we're where has it left us? It's left us in a situation where Tom Wilson's punching guys who are defenseless on the ground in the back of the head. And he's getting a five thousand dollar fine for it. It's completely insane. So I think you would go too far the other way if you brought in a guy that like had his career ended because he would like it would like it's too far of a swing. I think you either have to bring in like a true outsider, like somebody like not affiliated with the NHL in any capacity, a guy who would like, you know, or girl, whoever is, is they're sitting in the meeting and they're watching it and Tom Wilson is zoomed in or whatever. And they just they're they're looking at him going, what the hell is this? Like, explain this to me in layman terms because I'm not associated with the league. This just makes no sense to me. See, if you haven't played at least 500 NHL games, I don't think the NHL is going to hire you in this role. Which is stupid. I don't think that that's necessarily... But I think you would get a lot of pushback from the general managers and the owners. They'd be like, well, it doesn't know how the league works and blah, blah, blah. And I don't necessarily think in that role that it's a bad thing. I think it's actually a good thing if you had someone kind of clean come out and, you know, organizations do this all the time. They bring in people from the outside to audit, right? Or look at things differently and just kind of go, okay, like, I don't know how things work here and I don't really care. This is just stupid. So I think that would be one solution. Or I think similar to your point, I just wouldn't get a player who's had their career ended. But Martin St. Louis has been fantastic when he's articulated some of his thoughts on on these kinds of incidents and how that's played out. And he's a guy who's a really good hockey player, or he was, I, he'll, I think he'll be a Hall of Famer. No, no question. He's won a Hart Trophy. He's yeah, yeah he was a stud. He's won they, two Hart Trophies, I think. Yeah, definitely the one. Um, and he won a cup, and he Let went to another. But the, you know, he hasn't had his career ended by anything. And I, you know, I'm sure he's had his incidences throughout his career, but uh, there was nothing major that stood out for me in that sense. So I think he would have a good head on his shoulders for you know the league. Um, and understanding how things work and then also understanding the nonsense and what kind of goes out and St. Louis just one example but you could find a number of guys um who could figure it out like hell like you could figure out a way you know a player like Matt Sundin would make sense not like Sundin was a dirty player and he had a long generally speaking healthy career and I think he would get it. I mean, what about a guy like Ray Ferraro, just someone who's clearly very knowledgeable yeah. about the sport in general, just another smart voice to bring it. This yeah. Brendan Shanahan, any role he's come to is just, oh, this is a smart guy who kind of gets it, and that's what I'd like to see in the role. And Colin Campbell still working for the NHL and having big say in these these issues has always been frustrating to me. By the way, two Art Rosses from Martin St. Louis, one Hart know. Trophy. My mistake in that regard. The, the thing is, is the job is kind of like being a politician in the sense that it, there's a lot of crap. So a lot of the good candidates don't actually want to do it. It's an undesirable position. It's kind of like being a referee. You can't win. At least, you know, there's a ton of referees that I know that, are, that I've seen. like they, And they usually play like some level of like junior or whatever. And then they switch over and become a ref. It, like for them, like there's a thrill because at least you're on the ice. Like you, you feel like you're in the game. Like that's pretty, that's pretty sick. But an off-ice official, someone it's more of a almost a legal jargon kind of situation where you're just like, oh, I have to look at precedent. I have to look at past examples and try to arrive at the right decision. It's not easy. If you're a ref, like you could enjoy the game. Like there could just be a good game that you're refing that there's not really many penalties and stuff. And you're basically just along for the ride. And that's pretty cool. 
if you're department of player safety, I mean, you don't get to enjoy the game. Like you are just dealing with the crap consistently and everybody calling you an idiot. Like there's no winning. If they suspended him for the rest of the year, a lot of people would be upset. Man, let's transition out of this just because it's such a frustrating yeah. topic and I don't see anything changing anytime soon. Uh, we normally do overreaction, underreaction, but I wanted to try a fun thing this week. We're going to go most overrated and most underrated Leaf, and we'll say for the 2021 season. Who do you have at the top of your list? Let's let's do underrated first. So I gave this some thought before when you said it. I thought this was a great idea. Super pumped uh, to get criticized, speaking of Department of Player Safety. I get lit up on Twitter. Here we go. Oh, definitely. I had Zach Bogosian down as my most underrated player this year. Interesting. I think... First of all, a lot of the rhetoric when he was first signed was that basically he was garbage, and if he plays even half the games, the Leafs should be upset. Roman Polak 2.0. Yeah, right? There was a lot of just, like, why would they sign this plug? Like, he's just in here as, like, you know, your, like, grinder, like, physical presence kind of guy. Like, Zach Bogosian can play. You know, I'm not. he's not a top four defenseman. He fully understands his role. He plays within himself. He's steady. He covers for the young guys that he's paired with. He lets them play their game, and he kind of sits back and takes care of business. And I think there's something commendable to that. I think people are quick to forget what uh, third pairings that are completely inexperienced look like. They're a nightmare from game to game. You get some good games and some really, really bad games. But for the whole this season, I've really just looked at their third pairing and been like, they have been solid. They have just kind of hummed along their way. And I think that's what you want out of a third pairing, especially when you have the top four that the Leafs do and the forwards. You just do your job. And he comes in and he just does his job every night. And I think there's something really commendable about that. Coming into the season, if you were to guess what his shot share would be at 5-on-5 five five, or his expected goals at 5-on-5, five five, I don't think you'd expect them to be this good. On a pair with Travis Dermott and over 362 minutes together they're at 54 percent shot share 57 percent expected goal that's one of the best third pairs in hockey i think he's a good complement to a puck mover on a third pair because he's not the greatest puck mover i think we know that we can see him play that that even though surprisingly he will pull something out of his bag of tricks every once in a while but i think it's the way that he settles things down defensively and this is an aspect of the game that i'm still trying to learn more about each and every day because i think it's probably the most difficult aspect of things to measure especially when we look at the impact of save percentage on the outcome of games the relationship between defense and save percentage has always been a difficult one to measure we we say that it's randomness and you can't really impact it at all but then i'll see some defensemen who actually take away backdoor passes whereas there are other defensemen who look completely aloof in that instance and at, the, at, at some point, I think that matters, and it's it's paired up by the numbers here. The expected goals against are really low with him on the ice. I think he's doing something in that regard to prevent chances against while, against, while facing the cycle, taking away the quote-unquote front of the net. I remember this used to be my biggest frustration with uh, Roman Polak back in the day. If you say, oh, he takes away the front of the net, and then you pull up his heat map, and he's giving up a bunch of chances from in front of the net. That's not the case with Zach Bogosian. He's actually taken away the front of the net. The other team doesn't get chances from there. Evaluating defense and evaluating cycle defense, I think, is one of the more difficult things to do. And sometimes I'm worried that coaches overrate it too much and it results in them falling in love with a Nikita Zaitsev who can't move the puck and can't defend the rush. And as a result, he's just getting buried every single shift at 5-5. Five and five. Zach Bogosian, I think, is an example of a strong defensive player on a third pair. Let me make that. Mm-hmm. If he's playing in the top four, you're in trouble. But defensively I find myself looking for little things every night he's the last man back I'm like, okay make sure you take away that passing lane he takes away the passing lane okay make sure you pick up that last man on the three on two rush he picks up the man on the three on two rush it's the little things sometimes and again defense is probably the hardest aspect of hockey to properly evaluate from night to night because sometimes you know what is defense can you even see it it's the absence of anything but I've been happy with Bogosian's performance this year. I'm going to go boring with mine. I'm going to say that Jake Muzzin is, is the most underrated player on the Leafs just because That's fair. the ability to play against top competition alongside literally anyone, I think is the most valuable trade a defenseman can have. And we've seen it with Zaitsev. We've seen it with Hall. We talked about it earlier. It's reached the point with Muzzin where you don't even need to worry about him. You kind of know what you're going to get. So 
I can't imagine there's gonna be too much backlash. I just he has a few games every once in a while where you're just like, man, what do you, he? Last night he threw a massive pizza. Yep, that was stunning. That was a bad play. He has his moments once in a while, but overall, you're right. He's he's good. His breakout numbers are way down from where they were a year or two ago, so that's something to keep an eye on. But the way that he defends the rush, the way that he just shuts things down at the blue line every single time, it's it's awesome to watch. I wish you wish he had six Jake Muzzins out there. Yeah. Conversely, and I don't know if you have anything to add, anything further to add on Jake Muzzin before I switch to my most overrated player. Um, more offense than I would have expected from him this year. He's surprisingly good offensively, jumping in as the fourth man. I I wouldn't have expected that. I'm pretty sure over the last three years, he's very close to Morgan Riley, if not more than him, in five on five points. And he's not nearly as involved offensively, and doesn't take the pinches or the risks that Riley takes. That's why I look and I always say, I was saying early in this podcast, people talk about, oh, who's the five on five and PK. It's Jake Muzzin, people. Jake Muzzin's their best D-man. Don't be fooled by anything else that you see. You go to the catch-all metrics, whether it's war, whether it's RAPM, you know, shot share, expected goals. At five on five, he's been the best defenseman on the team when you adjust for context. And I think that adds up with my eyes. He can play against the other team's top players, shut them down defensively. And he used to be really good at making the first pass out of the zone. Kind of struggling in that department this year, but it, it's still the the net effect is positive because of how good he is defensively. Conversely, I'll say for my most overrated player this season is his partner, Justin Hole. I had him as at the top of my list. Now I got to pick someone else. Uh, oh no, I had another player, and then we were going through the podcast and. To the listeners here, I'm just stalling time for Ian because I totally sewered him. I said another player before we even started. It's all good. Uh, no, let's let's get into this discussion because I've been high on Justin Hall for the last few years. Even when he was on the Marlies, I was mad that he wasn't getting a chance with the Leafs because I was thinking six foot three, right-handed defenseman. I think he defends the rush pretty well, and I think he can activate he on the well. breakout. Yeah, he can. He can be the guy who covers for a forward who's caught deep in the zone. And now you have three players up the ice. You have a three-on-two rush because Justin Hall read the play well. And that's why his shot metrics were always good at the AHL level. Came up to the NHL level, looked really good for a month or two. They gave him that three-year contract. Ever since that moment, I've been looking at his heat map and looking at his five-and-five impacts, kind of with and without Jake Muzzin. It's not as good as I thought it would have been. Yeah, so I'll say off the top, I'm not saying that Justin Hall is a bad player. But at one point, people were actually considering him as the best defenseman on this team. Okay, that's not actually true. I think that was more of a meme on the internet. He's Connor McDavid's dad. No, like there was a point there early this season. Like he he was on a heater. He was on a heater and he looked good. Like his production was there too. I mean, he was humming along at 0.5 points per game or something. He was right up there. And I remember he led them in game score to start the year. It was Dom had the uh, Justin Hall Norris conversation. It was a joke. I know some people were joking, but there was a lot of serious chat about how really good he is and um you know how much of a steal that contract was but for me one he plays with the best defenseman on the team so he's second best player on his pairing counter argument tj brody played with mark giordano for a long time and that was part of the reason i didn't think he was going to work in toronto and lo and behold tj brody's just a really good hockey player i think i think brody's had a much longer career of success um, just being in the league in general, whereas Hole has essentially played with Muzzin, but when he hasn't, as you've noted, he hasn't looked good. And I was going to take that back to last year in the playoffs when when Muzzin got hurt. I thought Hole was really bad the rest of the way. Yeah, and that really sewered the Leafs' chances in that playoff series. They were back down to one pairing, and it was just I was watching him, and I was going, you know, he's a nice enough player. He's a nice enough complimentary guy because of all those things you mentioned. He skates well. He defends pretty well. He's got an active stick. He can move the puck decently. Uh, he's a heads-up player all in all. I just I, he, I don't look at him as a guy that carries his own pairing. No, and I don't think he was ever going to be that. I think the, the hope with him was that he could complement a really strong defenseman in the top four and be kind of a number four defenseman. Yeah. Looking at the number of chances he gives up off the rush, I was going through some of Corey Schneider's uh, manual tracking data, as I always do, because that's just what I do in my free time. I'm a nerd. He has the worst uh, scoring chance rate against. He gives up a lot of chances off the rush, and it makes sense if you look at the way he goes about defending the rush. He's kind of late in when he 
tries to attack the puck carrier. My favorite thing about Muzzin is he kills plays early. He kills them in the neutral zone. Even Travis Dermott, he'll kill the play at the red line. Timothy Lilligren in his first game uh, after the call-up, killing plays at the red line. Justin Hall will wait till the guy's in the zone and ready to take the shot before he throws his stick out and tries to get his stick on the puck. When you get your stick on the puck, it's good, and it, it deflects it far away from the net. But when you don't, you end up with a Nick Suzuki situation where he's shooting it through you as the screen and he's going bar down. So I was just about to bring up that goal, right? Like that that to me was a classic one. Like you got backed in by Nick Suzuki, who's a nice enough player, but holy cow, you do not give that guy that much respect. And when I get mad at Morgan Riley for giving up too much of a gap as a transition defender, I find myself having similar frustrations with Hall this year. And it, it, it bothers me because I think he's been good in this area in the past. And I think this season especially, I don't know what it is. I'm trying to think of, okay, when does he get beat? The times where Justin Hall gets beat, what's gone wrong? And is he too late to read that he should turn earlier? Because he can stay with guys as a skater when he reads it well. So maybe he's late on the read defensively when to pivot, when to stay with the guy. Maybe he's late on his poke check. Maybe he should be looking to poke it earlier in the, in the neutral zone as opposed to later after the guy crosses the blue line. But he's bleeding too many chances against off the rush, and that's something that... I didn't think would be a concern with Hall. If anything, I thought the concern would be off the cycle, he's getting pushed around, he's losing one-on-one battles in front of the net, you know, he's getting bullied. I haven't been too worried with him in that respect, but I get worried with him even on the breakout now, which is not an, an area where you should be getting worried with Hall. He should be a good puck mover. He should be someone you trust under pressure with the puck on his stick, and he seems to be turning plays over too often in, in those instances. So... Again, I've always been high on Hall, but I try to look at all the evidence that's out there right now. Like you said, new information comes to light, and you have to update your priors. Giving up way too many chances off the rush, and if you look at any five-on-five context-adjusted metric, he looks like a below-average NHL player in that regard, and that's not ideal. Yeah, he kind of seems like a 4-5 to me. And honestly, lately, he's been... You know, I've I've felt over the past month and change that he's really actually looked more like a 5 than a 4 but he plays with Muzzin, and honestly, they play in a shitty division. I know that this has been an overblown topic to some degree, but or uh, an over-discussed uh, topic to some degree, but we really can't take that context. Like, the division sucks. The, like, honestly, the teams they've played recently, depleted Montreal, depleted Winnipeg, depleted Vancouver, like, terrible teams. I'm going through the least roster right now trying to come up with my other overrated player just because you stole mine with Hall. Uh, you should take mine that I told you before the... Should I just should I just stay on brand and go with Morgan Riley? Yeah, you can. You can make your argument here. I've been making this argument for the last couple of years, so it almost I feel bad because I, I genuinely like Morgan Riley as a human being, but I just every report card I put out, it's just me showing another clip of him getting beat off the rush. So is this me being biased? He'll have like a two or three point night, and you're like one star. I'm like, okay, Ian, calm down. <laughs> All right, like give him three stars. Like the man had a few points tonight. Like relax. Smile. What if it's on a shot from the blue line that bounces off someone's ass and in? Is that is that really? Oh, highlight real play. Five stars. Just not five. Three. Middle ground. I don't know because I felt this way about Roman Yossi in the past, and then he went and won the Norris. So maybe I need to give credit to players who can. No, the Norris stuff is bullshit. Victor Hedman's gonna win it this year in, in his worst year of the last ten years, it... and he shouldn't. Adam Fox looks disgusting. I've watched a, f- a number of Rangers games. He is amazing he's sick that was one i've been wrong about half the things i say when it comes to hockey but i was really mad when the leafs passed on him for joseph wall and that take has aged well so but he might not have signed here same thing he did in calgary right yeah no he wouldn't have that was the big reason he slipped that was why he slipped into the third round because i think it was well known he was gonna play all four years in harvard and go to the rangers i think the rangers are the easiest team to general manage in the league because they just have guys that walk right over panarin fox like, well, the Leafs are becoming that slowly. That's yeah, the, the Leafs is a different flavor, though. For some reasons, like the fame of New York, but also to some degree, like the like you're a little bit anonymous. Like it's you're not. I know New York is obviously a bit of a pressure cooker, but it's not negative the way Toronto is. Yeah, it's the lifestyle. You want to have the glitz and the glamour, but also not have to answer a million questions every day about stupid stuff, whereas the Leafs, that's the job. I mean, if Matthews is playing for the Rangers, I mean, he's still probably not more noteworthy than Aaron Judge. Uh, 
possibly, you know, a number of guys, potentially like a, a giant player or two. Julius Randle. Right? Like, you know, like he really, like, it's stunning. And I'm not, it's not saying in a disrespectful way to Matthews at any capacity, but if you're a player and you're like, I can live in an a, like, amazing city. I love New York. One of my favorite places to go in the world, no questions asked. And, you know, you could live the high life and not be, you know, bombarded anytime you go out in public it sounds pretty nice that's why players love it in florida that's why players love it in california it's you know you get the beach you get the weather you get the tax situation and no one bothers you joe thornton can just walk around shirtless and people don't know who he is they just think he's another homeless guy (laughs) with morgan riley can i give you the opportunity to actually make the argument because i feel like i've been making it so often and it was one that you were prepared to make so can i hand the keys to the ferrari to you here into in defense of Morgan Riley or against Morgan Riley? Eh, I mean, you, I'll take it wherever you want to take it. So I think there's a little. I he's he's become super controversial to discuss. Uh, it seems there's a number of Toronto players that are always in this zone where people just swing so hard one way or the other. I've had, you know, I've received messages myself this year about you know being too negative towards him or or whatever the case is and. I think that there's some there's something to be said about eating minutes and whether you think he does it really well or or just a little bit below average. Uh, if you're eating 24 minutes a night, like, I think there's something to that, right? Like they're like that's hard. That's really hard to do. Even when we look at a guy like Jake Muzzin, like his skating is not that good. Like I don't think Jake Muzzin could play 23, 24 night in night out. I think they ramp him up when they need to, but otherwise, that's not really the zone that you want him in. So there's something to be said that Riley can kind of handle that responsibility within reason. At the same time, I think he's a second pairing D-man on the team. And I don't think that gets recognized. At five on five, this is the weird thing, is that when a guy is putting up big points on the power play, even big points at five on five, but their net impact because of what they give up defensively, they're maybe not as dominant at five on five. What is that defenseman? And I think we've always overrated that defenseman, not just in Toronto, but on every NHL team. The guy who quarterbacks PP1, but at 5-on-5, five five, he's not your most impactful guy. I think we have a long history of overrating players who put up big point totals, but maybe aren't impacting winning to the degree that you'd think they would be with those point totals. And as someone who always appreciated the fact that Jake Gardner at 5-on-5 five five outshot and outchanced the opposition, he got buried in this city every time he made a mistake defensively. Yet Morgan Riley never seemed to receive the same criticism despite giving up lots of chances and lots of opportunities off the rush against. And this is part of the reason I try to bring it up in all my report cards, just because I think when I try to objectively evaluate the position, I'm trying to go, okay, how are you impacting chances for? How are you impacting chances against? Why are these happening? And then with Morgan Riley, I dive into the video and I go, this is why it's happening. It's because you pinched here when you shouldn't have, or it's because you didn't skate back hard enough after you pinched, and now it's a three-on-two instead of a three-on-three, and that really matters. So I don't want to sound like I'm someone who just hates Morgan Riley because I understand that he's also top five in the league in zone exits, and that's a list with guys like Kale McCarr, Charlie McAvoy, Roman Yossi. It's a list you want to be on. Why they play him so many minutes, if you have a guy who can exit the defensive zone and get the puck to your best forwards... That's a trait that really matters on a team like Toronto. So that's not lost on me. It's just defense, I think, is an aspect of the game that we tend to overlook sometimes. And it's an aspect where Morgan Riley is really not providing much value. Yeah, and, and I'll we'll get ready to wrap up here. And I just kind of wanted to note this one final thing on him that I've always been confused on. And this is a good time to somewhat bring it up. I've never understood like some of the love fest towards him. And I like Riley. because he's you a great see... guy. I think he's a genuinely awesome human being. But, like, like, we'll compare to Kadri. I totally get the Kadri love. I mean, that guy would blow people up. That guy would fight. He was feisty. People loved him. He had an edge. He scored big goals. He ran his mouth. Like, that is a Toronto player, if I've ever seen one. Got himself suspended twice in the playoffs in back-to-back years. Yeah, don't even get me started on this, the Jake DeBrus. We'll be here for another three hours if I start going on on that subject again. Tom Wilson would have got a fine for that. <laughs> I just, I can't. I honestly can't. But I get why people loved Naz. I loved Naz. But Riley, it's not like, I've never, you know, seen a, a season where I'm going, okay, Riley carried this team on his back and they stunk and he dragged them along because he was sick. 
or you know 70 point season where he had 20 goals yeah but he was he was good but I don't think that he was the reason for their success that season he was really really good but I wasn't watching that team going damn Morgan Riley's carrying the mail here so I just I've always been a little confused on that I mean I I never thought that he or I've, I've never really thought that he's earned some of you know the undisputed love I don't think he's earned some of the undisputed hate but some of the the love and the takes on him I've you know he's yet to have a truly big moment hey if this guy goes in and you know he rips a few overtime winners in the playoffs and the Leafs go on a run and he has a heroic time and he plays through you know a broken ankle or whatever and people love him I'd get it then even I would be like okay back off Morgan Riley that guy's a hero there was the game six against the Boston Bruins where they had the chance to to win the series and nobody on the Leafs showed up that night except Riley had one of the best games of his career yeah he scored the one-timer goal yeah he was sick but that's not enough for me there, but again, I'd never like over analyzing one game samples. Yeah. As someone who does it every night, it's like, well, okay, you need to take it with a grain of salt. It's just one game. I care more about two hundred plus games of what you've done. You can never go crazy on one game, but if a guy has, a, you know, like a hero moment game or whatever in the playoffs, and and fans are just in love with him, I can at least understand that. But I just, I, I don't get where some of it's coming from. Like, honestly, deep, like in my heart. I think it's because he was drafted fourth overall, you know, Fifth, developed. Yeah. He's from Canada. He's not the captain, but he basically is in the locker room. He's one of the most liked guys in the organization. His public persona is pretty awesome. He's he's dating Canadian royalty and Tessa Virtue. So I, I understand it. I just, if I'm strictly evaluating his play on the ice, I always think that his reputation has been higher than his actual on-ice impact. Yeah, he... We'll see. I, hey, I'm I'm the first guy. I just I want to see the team, you know, have a playoff run. I would, you know, love for Riley to play a big role in that. I think he will. I hope he will. I don't know. I hope he scores a point per game in the playoffs and wins the con Smythe. That would be awesome. You know, that would be great. Yeah, I don't care. I just want to see it happen at this point. They cannot lose round one. That's how we're ending this podcast. I don't care who they're playing. They cannot lose. <laughs> so we'll be back next week. Will the playoffs be starting anytime soon? By the time when we record next week, will the playoffs have started? Ah, uh, no, because there's like a ridiculous run of games that Vancouver has to play. It's embarrassing. They should just honestly mail in the season. Oh yeah, and Leafs' last game of the season is Friday, May fourteenth. So yeah, it's it's stupid. We'll be back next week to talk about their big game against the Ottawa Senators coming up. I don't even know what we'll talk about next week, but we'll try our best. Did you see the tweet where Lilligram was on the PK and it was the super bad get, uh, clip? It was two weeks left. Fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's classic. We Our movie references have been amazing tonight. Yeah. That's that's how everyone's feeling right now. So we'll get out of here. We went way past an hour. This, we're on the ice for too long here. We got to get off. So um, thanks for joining me this week, Anthony. We'll be back next week to talk about the Leafs' remaining games that don't matter. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.